Welcome to this episode of the For the Kingdom, Not the Brand podcast. And in this episode, I want to finish the brief, or um, um, I want to uh, continue the brief series where I'm expositing or explaining some of the truths we can find about God's character and the way he acts amongst his creation, in which that includes us, his image bearers, and ultimately, if you are a Christian, his redeemed people. In part one, in case you missed it, I used a I used a handful of analogies to illustrate how we tend to view God in the midst of our lives. In the midst of the bustle of life, we lose sight of God in terms of who He is, and instead of focusing on Him, we focus on whatever else is around us at a given moment. And it is only when we stop and see Him for who He is, is when we can appreciate and marvel at His beauty and majesty in light of His character and His action. Not going to lie, as I wrote the script, I realized how much English majors would probably suffer an aneurysm over how much of a run-on sentence that was, but I digress. Anyway, uh, one of the examples I used came from a story in which I detailed my impulsive and random decision to one day go on a six-ish mile run with a backpack on to and from Picnic Point in Madison, Wisconsin. And when I finally stopped at the destination of Picnic Point, and keep in mind, this isn't exactly the perfect analogy, I finally appreciated the beauty of that view. The other example, and I'm probably going to regret using this, um, although... I'm just going to full send it anyway, is for the dudes here. Maybe there's that young lady in your life where when you finally stop in the bustle of your life, you're awakened to the godly beauty that she radiates with her modesty, her character, and there's a sense of nobility, and there's that gentle and quiet spirit that brings glory to God and not herself. And also part one is where I read out Psalm 103 and and 104 and hopefully y'all have done your homework and read over these psalms yourselves if not all good just if you are able to open up god's word with me and i'm and i am also going to be reading from the csb version if you are driving do not open your bible while while driving um i know there's a very famous carrie underwood song that talks about now, like taking the wheel, but um, do not test the Lord your God. I'm, I'm, I am just going to put it like that. Okay, anyway, um, Psalm 103 is a Psalm of David. And while there is no note of when and where this was written during his uh, life, David could still rejoice in the forgiveness of God even before and after his affair with Bathsheba. And the first two verses of Psalm 103 say, My soul Bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. There is a call here to bless God for who he is. God is a holy God. The only, uh, the holy God. And, and, and in Hebrew writing, when a phrase is repeated, it shows some kind of emphasis in that there is an emphatic call to bless the Lord. The phrase, do not forget his benefits, that is also a call for us to not forget all of his, well, as it is stated in his phrase, the benefits that he gives to us, his redeemed people. And what are those? And, well, I'm glad you brought up that question. And it's shown in verses 3 through 5. And they say, 
He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. And as I go forward in these three verses, I want to go slowly to show you the beauty of these truths. It says God forgives all of your all of your iniquity. Our God does not offer partial salvation, as Paul Washer once placed it. If salvation was 99.99% God and 0.01% us, we would all be damned. Psalm chapter 40 verse 11 also shows us that God does not withhold his compassion from us and that his constant love and truth will always guard us. Verse 3 shows how God forgives all of our iniquity and it ties into verses 11 through 12 in this same chapter which says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let us not get over the fact that God washes all of our sins past, present, and future as white as snow. Our slate is clean. In the sight of God, when we put our faith in Christ, we are seen as justified because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness unto us. This was made possible because our sin was imputed onto Christ upon the cross, and he bore the full wrath of the Father so that we may be justified. There is no room in the Christian life for self-righteousness. It begins with Jesus, continues with Jesus, and ends with Jesus. I know that in the current world that we are in today, we may use the word, quote-unquote, quote-unquote, performance interchangeably with self-righteousness. I want to approach this topic with gentleness and respect, and yet I also want to be faithful to see God glorified and his word exalted above all else in my life and in the lives of others because his word is inspired, clear, sufficient, inerrant, and and infallible. If it wasn't, I I will put this as bluntly as possible. Every one of us Christians would be beyond screwed. And so let us be careful when we use the word performance because we live in an increasingly therapeutic world. And what do I mean by that? Modern psychology is predicated on the idea of saving the ego, the self-confidence, the self-induced happiness of the self. And when we use the term performance instead of self-righteousness, when we confess our sin, we may be tempted to use the former in order to save face and not highlight our sin for what it is when we try to pursue self-righteousness, ditching the grace of God and trying to earn merit from Him with our works. And that has been, ref- that has been refuted repeatedly throughout Scripture. And now, I will say, yes, we are saved for good works, but we must remember that we are not saved by our good works. Or, and neither do we keep our salvation through our good works. In the latter half of verse 3, it says that, uh, quote, He heals all your diseases. Now, I want to be careful here before I go forward. Faithful teachers over and over and over again have shown that this is not a sign of the prosperity gospel. 
And John MacArthur in his notes highlight that this is meant to be understood within the context of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, which says, See now that I alone am he. There is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. No one can rescue anyone from my power. God is a God who is able to heal. He is able to heal. And at the same time, we must remember that he ultimately holds sovereignty over our good health or lack thereof. Going to verse 4, it says, He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Let us not forget the miraculous redeeming work that God has done in our lives, that he has regenerated us. He has made us born again. I know that in my church in Madison, Wisconsin that I attend, there is this kind of prevailing joke that occasionally shows up that you might have heard some uh, Southern dude say, you must be born again. And a whole bunch of my friends will automatically turn to me since, well, they're all from the Midwest. And if you know me for more than five minutes and or I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, you'll know that I'm from Georgia. Except, well, I got on a bit of a tangent there. But in this time that we have, let us marvel at the beauty of the doctrine of regeneration. And I'm going to quote Paul Washer again. He, he argues that the, that, that the regeneration of a sinner is a greater display of God's power than the very creation of the universe. How so, you may ask? Let us understand our depraved state outside of God. Apart from God, we are not righteous. We are radically depraved. And in our state before regeneration, our hearts were unresponsive, cold, indignant, and hostile to God and His truth. We were spiritually dead. Just a massive, sinful, broken, and decaying flesh. And at some point, if you are a Christian, we were like the nations and peoples mentioned in Psalm 2, plotting against the plans of the Lord. We were the spiritually dead walking amongst the earth. And in a mere moment, a flash, God removed the scales from our eyes, gave us ears to hear, eyes to see, and made us responsive to him and his truth. I remember something so vividly from the day that I was saved. When God removed the scales from my eyes and turned my heart of stone to that of flesh, I stopped desiring to curse so much. I also remember going around telling people, I don't want to sin anymore. There was a radical change because he regenerated me. He made me born again. He redeems our lives from the pit. He is a God who redeems our lives from the pit. We who were once on the path to eternal separation are now chosen, destined, and brought into eternal unification. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And the other half of Psalm, um, of, of verse 4 of Psalm 103, it says that he crowns us with faithful love and compassion. I have a question for you as you listen into this. Do you doubt that God really loves you? Do you think that he withholds his love uh, from you? I know that I've asked myself that question in multiple facets over the course of my faith walk. I can feel that way at times, but in our faith walk, let us not trust our feelings and cognitive uh, phases. 
Let us trust the word of God that declares that God does not withhold his compassion from us and that his constant love and truth will always guard us, as it says in Psalm 40, verse 11. Romans 8 shows us as well that everything works together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There is a promise there that one day we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ, even in the midst of the sanctification process that may feel stagnant at times. This is so that Jesus may be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters. And those he, pre- those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There is no exception for anyone that is in Christ. These are sure promises for those whom God loves. Want to see more of the truth of God's love? Look a little further into Romans 8 starting in verse 31 all the way to verse uh, 34. And it says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And so moving on to verse 5, it says, He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like an eagle. God is the one who is the giver of good gifts, or, or, or in this case, good things. And He is the one who renews our strength, vigor, and power. I want us to think upon the notion that he satisfies us with uh, with good things. And also, I also want to bring in what I talked about in verse 4. Have you truly experienced the good things or satisfaction from God? Have you truly experienced his goodness? Have you truly experienced his redeeming love? David had a life marked by hardship distress and at times iniquity and yet over the course of the psalms we see that he affirms the goodness of god and the love of god especially in light of what has happened in his life he doesn't just cognitively appraise god's love he is he has also experienced it god is good and god is love in light of who he is as as is often stated by those in christian circles we often respond to the quote-unquote progressive Christian circles uh, that say that have taken over the term uh, God is love and so we then respond by saying no God is holy but oftentimes when we when we choose to refute the statement God is love we may be tempted to think that God does not love or that we fit our presuppositions of what love is unto God that is love that tires is limited and is not Uh, faithful? And how often do we roll our eyes or grow indignant to the phrase, God is good? That has ought to be something we think about and and ultimately bring to the Lord in prayer. I was thinking about this over the the past few days as well as of writing the script for the podcast. And it's another great point by Johnny Artavanis who is a far better expositor compared to me. This isn't verbatim what he said in a sermon over Psalm 
34. And obviously, I know that y'all should look it up. It is beautiful. But it is easy to sing songs about God's grace and love without us being truly captivated or enraptured by God's grace and love. How often do we sing songs that go, who are you to care for me? Amazing love, how can it be? Or amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then we just stand or sit there, perhaps thinking in some sense that God's love and grace is just average or mid, if you want to use, I don't know, modern vocabulary. No, God's love and grace is amazing because it is not withheld to those he loves. He fully redeems, he fully saves, he fully forgives. And I want us to jump to verses 11 through 12 again because it is so easy to just glance over these two verses. As I was meditating on these two verses before church, church, it struck me that obviously this wasn't written in our modern connected world. We live in a world where we can get onto a plane and get to say, I don't know, South Korea uh, 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 from Atlanta in a mere 16 hours. Although now bear with me. It's still 16 hours, and I unfortunately have to get on a flight to to South Korea from Atlanta later this month. Pray for me, please. <laughs> and again, um, David writes in verses 11 through 12, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Let us not lose sight that in his time... To get anywhere, you would have to use an animal, boat, or walk. Travel was not easy, and is not, and it is not a hyperbole or over-exaggeration of who God is, in that God, in that, in the terms of who God is and what He does, in that David uses this figurative language to show that our slate is wiped clean with God. So great His is his faithful love, for it is as high as the heavens are from the earth. David didn't know anything about the vacuum of space. He was legitimately awed by the fact that God's love was as high as the sky uh, from the ground that he was on. It looked infinite to him, and it is. David didn't have ways... Google Maps or or Apple Maps. He didn't have Google Earth. He didn't have GPS. He rejoiced in the fact that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed the transgressions from his people. Verses 6 through 10 continue to talk about the character of God and his actions. They say, The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. God is the ultimate perfect judge and brings justice justice to those who oppress and for those and for those who are oppressed not in a social justice sense but in a biblical justice sense according to his character in that he does not show partiality and brings the full might of his power so that his name is exalted above all not human not human groups not not any kind of ideology, but his name be exalted above all else during the flames of judgment and even when the ashes finally finally settle. We should also recognize that David likely wrote this in the backdrop of God's 
faithfulness to Israel in the Old Testament, which also explains verse 7. God explained and showed who he is to Moses and the people of Israel as he brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. There are many parallels to Exodus, to Exodus chapter 4, verse 36, where David shows that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love. Verse 9 shows that God is not a petty God. He is truly and fully righteous, and He is just. He will not accuse us or, and and it also depends on and, and it also depends on your translation, chide with us or strive with us. The CSB translation says, accuse us. He will not be angry forever. Verse 10 highlights the mercy of God in that he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. How is that so? Since God is a God of justice and righteousness, would that make him unjust, unfair, unrighteous? No, because in his divine plan, as it is shown in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. In the Old Testament, David looked forward to the coming Redeemer who would be the final sacrifice for sins for God's people. He has, God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities, not because he swept them under the rug, but because in his providential decree, there would be a Savior who would redeem a people for God's glory and for his people's good. Verses 13 through 19 encapsulate my second to last point with the reality of mankind, with the brevity and fragility with our lives, with God caring for us and telling us of the beauty of the life to come, i.e. eternal life. Listen to these truths starting in verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows that we are made of or for 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 he knows what we are made of remembering that we are dust as for man his days are like grass he blooms like a like a flower of the field when the wind passes over it it vanishes and its place is no longer known but from eternity to eternity the lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts, the Lord has this, has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. While the phrase in verse 13 begins with a simile, do not forget the reality that when we are saved, we have been placed into the family of God for eternity, and we are God's children. And when we are regenerated, our hearts are made to respond to Him. In fact, we are able to have a healthy fear or reverence for God because of His Spirit working in us and through us. Verse 14 is so beautiful in that it shows us that God cares for us because he knows what we are made of, that we are merely creatures from the dirt, just like Adam and Eve, and one day our physical bodies shall return to the ground. Verse 15 also shows us that once again that we as members of the human race are fragile. 
Our days are like grass. We bloom like a flower of the field. When the wind passes us over, we vanish and our place is no longer known. The legacy of one's great men, courageous men, will one day fade away. In eternity future and even eternity present, the stories of men like Julius Caesar, emperor after emperor, king after king, lord after lord, has faded away. Nothing more than a speck of dust in the grander scheme of God's providential plan. The legacies and glory of man's best laid plans are finite, but verses 17 through 19 show us that from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, i.e. the lineage of believers, those who remember to observe his precepts. The Lord's legacy and kingdom and glory will last forever. He has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules Overall, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As I was reading verses 13 through 19, I was once again reminded of one of my favorite hymns of all of all time. And the lyrics go, As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us at the cross. If you are listening and you aren't a Christian trying to store up treasures on this earth or build a self-made legacy for your own glory with some kind of kingdom or, or territory, let me tell you that that will one day burn up. The greatest treasure awaits you, and life eternal calls to you at the cross. Run to the Lord. Throw yourself unto His mercy. Those who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. If you've never believed in Christ, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Those who are Christians listening in, rejoice in your Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of your soul. Trust in Him no other. Let your soul be satisfied in Him alone. And that plea brings us to verses 20 through 22. There's a final emphatic call to bless the Lord. David praises God and shows that His angels, His armies, His servants, His works, and all the places where He rules are meant to bring Him glory. And David doesn't even forget himself with the last sentence. And it reads, My soul, bless the Lord. Everyone listening, bless the Lord. Worship Him Worship Him for who He is. He is a forgiving God. And we are His forgiven people. Who are we that He cares for us? Uh, amazing love. How can it be? I'll catch you guys in the next episode. Peace.